First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I've spent a long time going back and forth between giving up on something that was so important to my identity and you know, kind of probably will be the defining feature of, of my life when I look back. And then on the other hand, not feeling like I had to continue to do it forever. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode, Inside the Birth of Slack and Flickr. My guest today is best known for co-founding and running the enterprise messaging platform Slack, which made it to a billion dollars faster than any enterprise tech company before it. He's Stuart Butterfield, and he spoke to me exclusively on the eve of a very big decision. He's stepping back from his role as CEO of Slack and is about to hand over the leadership of the company he built. As a bonus, I got Stuart to share some untold stories about the company's unconventional founding, some advice for founders about just starting out, and the leadership lessons he learned along the way. Perhaps you've heard the legend of how Slack initially grew so fast. In part, it was by infiltrating companies around the globe, sneaking in past their IT departments because individual employees and small teams loved it, and they were just downloading it like crazy. Before long, it became institutional and paid. Remember, this was back in 2014 when it was hard to imagine a work app that people actually liked to use. But also, Slack has a fascinating story, in part because it didn't start out as Slack. It started out as a nameless little in-office tool used by a gaming company that Stuart had also founded. Weirdly enough, that wasn't the first time around that almost exact story for him. His first gaming company had turned into the popular photo sharing site, Flickr. Stuart hadn't set out to raise money from investors to build a tool for business. He didn't even really intend to lead one of the fastest growing companies ever. Back as a student, he set out to become a philosophy professor. But he did have a knack for making a buck, even in elementary school. Probably the uh, most unique one was arbitraging um, hot dog prices. The 7-Eleven near my house, this is how old I am. The 7-Eleven sold hot dogs for 25 cents, like, you know, kind of terrible 7-Eleven microwave hot dogs. Um, but I could take them down to the beach and sell them for a buck fifty. It was about a like five minute walk. So uh, I did that on the summer. Oh, and actually, there's another one. When I was uh, thirteen, my dad and some friends bought this old. This is also how old I am. An old porn theater, <laughs> <laughs> and converted it into like an art house cinema in my hometown. And uh, I worked at the concession, and there was this thing where there's like a lineup outside the building for the nine o'clock show while the seven o'clock show was still going. And uh, people would be standing outside and we'd be sitting inside. And then finally we'd open the doors and there'd be this huge rush and it'd be really chaotic and stuff. So I decided while the lineup was outside, I would go out with a little tray and I took a paper napkin and draped it over my arm like a French waiter. 
and um, asked people for their orders and then brought it out and made a lot of tips. Great. But Stuart, you did learn to code really early too as well, um, as well as, you know, mastering sales. I did, yeah. When I was, let's see, seven, I think, we got an Apple IIe. And um, in second grade, it was like the first grade at my school to have a computer in the classroom. I made a multimedia presentation of the world's flags. But because you had to enter in, you know, like each little block of color manually, I really focused on the flags that were super easy, like France, you know, just like three colors. <laughs> Something like Mexico or Brazil would be just out of the question, too complex. And your education... Um didn't seem to um, be sort of the classic Harvard Business School resume that you see today on so many CEOs and executives. I read that you got a master's of philosophy. What did you think that you'd be when you grew up? Honestly, I thought I'd be a philosophy professor. Wow. I finished my master's in uh, the academic year, 97, 98. So obviously that was like right when the dot-com stuff was all taking off. I started college in 1992. So kind of Basically, the perfect timing is right before the web started taking off. I taught myself HTML, and then that was my summer job all the way through college. So by the time 97, 98 came around, and um, some of my friends who were academics were getting their first terrible, you know, very insecure, low-paying jobs at colleges they didn't want to be at, I had another group of friends who were all kind of moving to San Francisco and making twice as much money and doing all this dynamic, exciting stuff. So... Uh, I decided to bail on the PhD program, and um, the rest is history. Yeah, well, not not quite history. I mean, it is history, but uh, let's talk about it a little bit. So you, before long, teamed up with Katerina Fake and Jason Klassen to build what would become Flickr. This is the early 2000s, but Flickr wasn't actually what you were building, right? No, we started off building what was called Game Never Ending. It was um, a web-based, massively multiplayer game. And um, the idea was really absurd, surreal, a little bit kind of Dr. Seuss, Monty Python, really kind of the opposite of most games, period, I guess. There's no violence. It wasn't competitive. It was collaborative and, and creative. It was also kind of a, an interesting time in terms of the technologies that were available, because we started in 2001. You know, also an interesting time, I guess, economically, because there was the dot-com crash, and there was WorldCom, and Enron accounting scandals, and then 9-11, so it was like not, a, not a great time in the markets. But web browsers were not that sophisticated. You know, you, there weren't the things that people expect today with what we call single-page web applications like Gmail or E-Trade or really complex, you know, Slack runs in a browser, and, and most uh, software does these days. Back then, it was pretty janky, pretty old-school and we built a prototype in 2002. It was kind of like, you know, it definitely got some traction. But as I said, not a great time to try to raise money. It was really, you know, probably, at least for internet stuff, the technology, a little bit worse than 2008, 2009. But um, one of the worst times in the last several decades. So how then did that sort of idea or company become Flickr? Well, um, we essentially ran out of money. We raised some like friends and family money, and and um, we put it in our savings. And we got to the point where the only person who was getting paid was the one who had kids because he he really needed to get paid. And um, we could see that the game was going to take many more years to actually fully develop and and become something that would be commercially successful. But uh, we thought, hey, we built all this cool stuff in the game. There was an inventory, and you could. Um, 
drag and drop stuff in and out of it, and you could share objects and you could chat with people. And so we said, digital photography was just taking off. The first camera phones were coming out. Instead of all these objects in the game, we'll just make your inventory a shoebox full of photos and people can share photos and chat and stuff like that. And that just seemed like something that we could get done in a couple of months versus a couple of years. And so we did it and then it really took off. Yeah. And it was really interesting at that time because that photo storage online was clunky if if existent. And there there was this whole ethos of kind of creative commons and building collaborative stuff online um, that I think Flickr was really formative of. But what is also fascinating is that then again, not a decade later, you built another massively multiplayer game that didn't exactly work. And that company went on to launch a little instant message tool for Teams. Um, how did this all happen again? Well, um, Flickr was acquired by Yahoo in end of 2004, early 2005. We worked there for a couple of years. And then in early 2009, uh, about uh, there's four of us, all of whom are on the original Flickr team, and decided to try again. And we thought, like, this time we can't fail because 2009 versus 2002, the technologies are 10x better, hardware is 10x cheaper, there's 10x more people online, like, we're much better at what we do. And it turned out that none of those were the problem. So (laughs) it also had a, like, really passionate fan base. But um, I guess there's a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them was we bet on a technology called Flash, which... Shortly after we started, uh, Steve Jobs famously decided it was not going to be available. iPhone, also, people's discretionary computer time made a hard switch from laptops to mobile devices. And um, we were a desktop flash-based game um, that just really had no path towards transferring to mobiles. We spent three and a half years on it. We spent a lot of money. um, And at the end of it, we realized that the way that we worked internally was great. We had this system that was like a proto version of Slack, and we all realized that we would never work without something like this again. So maybe other people would like it. And um, that was almost exactly 10 years ago. It was like the very end of 2012, early 2013, when we first got started. A year later, um, we released it to the public. And um, gosh, let's see, that would be 2014. By 2019, five years later, five and a half years later, we went public. And a year and a half after that, agreed to be acquired by Salesforce. And um, pretty crazy, all that happened in the last year. No, it's wild. I mean, by, by what, 2015, Slack was Inc.'s company of the year. I mean, it took off so, so quickly. Um, one of the fastest adopted, especially enterprise technology companies ever, I would say. Um, and I want to talk about that. Um, but but first, I want to ask you something niche that I'm just really interested in, because around that time, 2009, I was, um, is when I started like reporting on entrepreneurship and business and getting deep into that because I was interested in games and these sort of big multiplayer art projects and games that were happening in San Francisco at that time. I just want to ask you kind of philosophically, like, what's the importance of gaming to you and that act of um, creative collaboration? Um, it, I know it's it obviously is hard to hard to monetize unless you have a big game development firm. But yeah, how important is that to you? And, and Or was it just a blip in time? No, I, I think it's... Um... It's really the intersection of two things. So one is games, 
And when you say games, there's American football and there's Call of Duty and there's poker and there's like hopscotch. There's a whole big world of, of play. And the other part is just um, the use of computing technology for facilitating human interaction, which, you know, if you go back to 1992 when I first got to school, uh, I went to the University of Victoria in British Columbia. So it's like very provincial on the edge of the continent, very far away. And I realized I could transcend time and space, you know, like I could be having these conversations with people in Washington, D.C., in Sydney, Australia, and Helsinki, Finland. And um, that's just something that wasn't really possible before. Like there's no analog to that in all of human history. And I can't remember the name of the person, but someone pointed out that you know, people who are within 15 or 20 years of my age are the last generation of humans who will ever know life both before and after the internet because it's definitely you know it's a permanent feature of our, our species so part of it is that social interaction the art projects you were talking about and part of it is play and the video game industry is really kind of has two dimensions one is the type of game like this is how you reach an audience so you might have a real-time strategy game or a first-person shooter game or a puzzle game or whatever um, and that's one axis and then the other axis is what kind of dressing it has and that could be like dungeons and dragons or it could be post-apocalyptic sci-fi or it could be world war ii or, or whatever and on that two-dimensional matrix people locate the kinds of games they like like i like army games that are first-person shooters, or I like medieval real-time strategy games or, or whatever. When you try to do something that's completely out of left field, that's really much more about creative collaboration, like the point of the game is to create the world, it's very difficult for potential players to locate that in their universe of possible games. And so it's, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to, um, to find an audience for that. It's very, very niche. But also going back to 1992, I think about everything I've ever been interested in, like whether it was Game Never Ending, the first one, or Flickr, which was kind of not massively multiplayer game, but massively multiplayer photo sharing, or Glitch, the second game, or um, Slack, which is massively multiplayer workplace software. They're all, to me, just examples of the use of, of that technology to create new kinds of interactions between people. Yeah, I mean, you you leave me an easy transition here because when Slack was first put out into the world, you didn't, you know, have this giant sales force uh, calling up companies trying to get them to pay millions of dollars to integrate it into their operations. But you did manage to catch on sort of like wildfire, even though you had this thing that was not necessarily something people could locate in their world of potential possible companies or uses. It wasn't something people had seen before or really understood that well. Um, how did you get individuals to just try it or download it? Was it all like word of mouth at first or what, what made it catch on? You've definitely located the biggest challenge, which is trying, I, mean, I guess this is good advice for any entrepreneur anywhere. There's a bunch of stuff that people can buy, like beer or cars, where they already know what that thing is and they already know whether they want one. And then the challenge is just convincing them that they should buy your beer or your car. And there's pretty well understood methods you can do for that. You know, like you can compete on price or quality and brand is really important. If it's something that people have never seen before, they have much less patience for it and it's much more difficult to... Um, get them to give you a, a chance or you know, really spare a thought. Uh, there's a great book I would really recommend. It's Al Reese and Jack Trout called Positioning, um, which is like a, a kind of a classic marketing book. But they make the point that 
a new idea is really hard to get into someone's head. So people kind of fall back to it's Jaws meet Star Wars or something like that. Like take two familiar ideas and you can put them together or it's Uber for pets or something like that. You know, the very first people we got to use it were just friends of ours who we would beg and we would go back and explain to them, like meeting after meeting and meeting, like try to show them, um, you know, how we used it, why it was valuable. And that was great practice, like just having to explain it, getting you know, kind of half-hearted, maybe we'll try it responses until we could figure out how to explain it. And I say, uh, figure it out. We still haven't figured it out. You know, it's, now it's 10 years later and we still are constantly working on language, positioning, ways of explaining it, like graphics that will help demonstrate the idea, key terminology, all that kind of stuff. That is so interesting because now other people are saying, oh, I've made Slack for X or I've made a bot for integrating Slack and X, you know, <laughs> it's so well understood. I don't even know how many customers we have now, but it's you know maybe like 220,000, something around there. And that's you know tens of millions of people. Uh, but most people don't use Slack, you know. When we come back, I'll talk with Stuart about what Slack looked and felt like before it was even called Slack, and his intentions to step back from his role as CEO. But first, a quick break. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Tell me the, the internal Slack that you all, you used back then. How close was it to what the Slack we know now? Did it have a different name, different look, or like, was it fairly similar? That's a really interesting question. So I mentioned, going back to my first days on the internet, something called IRC, and that stood for Internet Relay Chat. And that was really um, popular kind of in the mid-90s into like the late 90s. It was originally developed in 1989, and so a really different era of technology and one of the things that it lacked that people kind of expect from messaging applications today is what's called store and forward of messages. So in IRC, you're only able to um, see a message that someone sent if you're connected at the same time as them. If you're not online and, and um, I send a message and you come back online later, you'll, you won't ever see it because there was no place for it to be stored, which sounds really basic, but we decided to use IRC for our internal communications and ran into that limitation pretty quickly. You know, if someone was in a meeting or out sick or traveling for work or on vacation or whatever, they wouldn't be able to catch up to the messages. So Cal Henderson, our, our CTO, co-founder, built a little bot that would log all the messages that people sent so that when you came back, you could catch up. And after we did that, we realized, oh, we have all these messages, we should make them searchable because we have a, a database of messages already. And then you could only use it on your desktop, so we built a mobile client for it so we could use it on our phones. And I can keep going down this list for like hundreds and hundreds of little improvements. I think the key thing was it didn't have a look, it didn't have a name, we didn't really call it anything other than, I guess, IRC. But over the course of many years, Every problem that was so irritating that we couldn't stand it anymore, we addressed, but addressed in the minimum number of minutes because it wasn't our actual work. It was just kind of like, you don't spend a lot of extra time cleaning the bathroom or ordering paper towels or anything like that. You'd spend the, the minimum amount of time doing that. 
And then when there's opportunities that were so obvious, we would take advantage of them as well. But it's totally different than the normal process of software development or any kind of product development, where there's a lot of ego involved in the decisions and proposals. There's a lot of speculation. This was like only exactly the things that were valuable to us. And there was no ego, there was no speculation, there was no arguments about it, and there was no extra time spent. So over the course of three and a half years, we ended up with something that, again, even at that time, we didn't have a name for it, but we all really liked it. And it was technologically, you know, completely different. We, we built it completely, but kind of in principle, in kind of its ethos, it was um, exactly the same as what became Slack. Yeah, that's so interesting because you built something that was just fundamentally useful and you were using it every day. Did you you or your team, um, your co-founders have any hesitancy about opening it up to the public? Did anyone fight on that, this one? No, I mean, I think we had discussions about, so I should say, we raised, um, I think, $17 million because after we had done Flickr, and Flickr had been acquired, and we, you know, we have had bigger names, um, it was much easier for us to raise money. In contrast to the reason we made Flickr is because we had no money at all. We had uh, around like five and a half million dollars of that left, and so one possibility was just to say, okay, well, this didn't work, and we'll give that money back to the VCs, and we'll, you know, do something else. We'll start another company, or go get jobs, or something like that. We decided not to, which from the VC's perspective was amazing because it's all kind of lottery tickets. And if you ask an investor, would you rather have, you know, one third of your money back, you know, so you lose 66%, or would you rather just have like another free ride on a, a ticket and see if something comes up? We did the latter. I think, you know, my recollection isn't perfect. And it's so funny when you go back and because we have transcripts of a lot of these conversations because we had them in our proto version of Slack. It's not always perfectly accurate, but I think there was, uh, after a couple of weeks of discussion about it, there was a real consensus and real belief that this would be something that, A, would be fun to work on, and B, people would really like. So you released it, and was the strategy of infiltrating corporate America via workers adopting and downloading this this workplace software on their own um, without approval from the IT department or from their manager, was that deliberate? Yeah, I think when we first developed it, I didn't really think about that kind of shadow IT sneaking in to the corporate world as a strategy because we really only thought about it as for like what we were, a team of eight people working on software development. We didn't really think about, you know, what we have today, which is large organizations with hundreds of thousands of employees using this much, much more complicated version of Slack. And in fact, I don't know if you remember this company, RDO. It was like a Spotify competitor. It was one of the first ones. The people who founded Skype started it. We had some friends who worked there, and they had 120 employees, which from our perspective was like this huge company, like just massive. And we finally got them to adopt it, and everything broke. Like <laughs> things just didn't work at that scale, so we had to, to rework a lot. But yeah, I think we thought about it as principally for startups or small teams, and we just didn't have any experience in enterprise software, so we didn't think... You know, that would be a, a bad or, or weird thing. You know, if a team of eight people inside of IBM wanted to start using it, it just made sense that they would pay for it on their credit card and that would not be a, an issue. A couple of years later, we did a preview release, what we called um, kind of like a, we didn't want to say beta because it was workplace communication software and didn't want it to sound like flaky. But uh, <laughs> in 
eight and a half, nine months after we first started development, we made it available to the first group of people. And in contrast to the game, which is what we were doing before, where we would keep on attracting new audience, but they would fall out really quickly, what's sometimes called a leaky bucket. It was the opposite with Slack. So not every team that started would continue using it, but you know, a pretty big percentage would. And of the ones that did, they all grew. So, you know, one person would sign up, let's say 10 individual people sign up. Let's say six of them keep going, so four of them drop off. Those six add five teammates each. Now you have, for 10 signups in the beginning, you have 30 people using it. So it was actually, we could just not add new users or new customers, um, and it would keep growing, and people would come back every day, five days a week. Um, so we knew pretty early, and by the time we launched, this is February 2014, it took us, I think, 72 hours to get to a million dollars in, in ARR, so recurring revenue. Wow. So we could really tell it was working then. So like, you know, basically, as soon as we we started it, it took us another three years before we had a real enterprise sales team and kind of started to figure out how to sell to larger organizations. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. Um, so then all of a sudden you are, in those three years, you've gone from this really interesting pivot to the CEO of this major company that you're scaling at this super fast pace. How prepared were you from your prior years of leadership to lead that fast-growing company? And and what lessons stick in your mind um, from that fast growth period uh, at Slack, which never really stopped, I guess. Yeah, it's still growing incredibly quickly. And at this point, it gets a little harder to know, but we were the the fastest to $100 million in uh, ARR, fastest to $200 million, fastest to $500 million, fastest to a billion. Now I think it's, a, it's a, the comparisons all break because of what happened with Zoom in um, in 2000 or t- 2020. But you know, if you if you leave Zoom off, you know, probably still the fastest growing enterprise software company. Gosh, I mean, I don't know. I, I had to learn everything. I think I'm good at product development and good at a certain type of, of storytelling, which are really valuable. I think I'm also good at uh, you know, general finance and have good business sense. Everything else I had to learn. You know, here's an example. I'm still terrible at recruiting. Like I'm still terrible at interviewing people. I feel like I have a lower than 50% hit rate. Yet we ended up with like just an absolutely amazing team. And um, I credit that to everyone else doing the interviewing. So our board members, co-founders, uh, the people we brought on, I feel like it's almost an essential skill. And I succeeded despite being very bad at it. You mentioned storytelling. Uh, tell me, tell me more about that. What what does that have to do with leadership? Um, and, and how did you how do you use it? It's probably the most fundamental skill of an entrepreneur. I mean, I think there's you know, many different strengths that people could have that can can be really essential for them. Storytelling is near universal because you need to be able to tell a story that is compelling enough that people will come to work at your company when you have, you know, no revenue and and no real prospects. You have to tell a story that will work for investors to convince them that this company is worth investing in. You have to tell a story to customers because, you know, know, when Slack first got started, how does anyone know that it's going to persist? Like, you know, you're going to start, if you decide you want to start using it, you might start using it and then we pivot to something else six months later or we go to business and then you have to start all over again and you lost all this time and effort. You have to tell a story to um, the press to get them to cover you and to um, help 
pass that story on kind of never stops, whether it's internal or external. Everyone has to believe. If no one believes, nothing happens. And if everyone believes, then your kind of success is inevitable. And as a company that does communications within companies, like what, what was your, your own strategy for internal communications? What frequency did you communicate with your teams um, and how best did you find to do so? Well, I guess because it's Slack was just, there was never a time when we weren't communicating internally. Like that's the, mm-hmm. that's the whole point. Um, and I find um, it's very, very difficult for me not to just say exactly what I think, which means I have to, <laughs> I have to come to think the the thing that I want to to say to people. But I feel like we had really good internal communications. So we like, I mean, now today there's a whole team that's called internal communications, and we have good people who work on it. But we really kind of believed that ultimately what we were trying to do was achieve this alignment. Someone, when I worked at Yahoo, and I can't remember who it was, drew on the whiteboard a bunch of circles and then drew a bunch of arrows inside the circles and all the arrows pointed in different directions. And the point was, if everyone's kind of oriented in a different direction or trying to accomplish something slightly different than the people around them, then it doesn't matter how much energy you put in, it all, all that effort just kind of cancels itself out. Whereas if everyone's aligned, everyone's working in the same direction, you're much more able to accomplish big, complicated things. And so we put a lot of effort into creating that alignment and and trying to get people to have a common understanding of the objectives, a common understanding of the methods that we're going to use, and more in individual employee terms, what it meant to be successful for them and what the expectations were, and ensuring that everyone had a common reference set, like had the same context and, and information. So we had in Slack channels that just pumped out, like every time someone signed up, every time we made a sale, um, every time someone canceled an account, just like constant barrage of, of information that was available to everyone across the company and a really robust um, volume of internal conversation on top of that. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone can knows that feeling of having robust <laughs> Slack conversation uh, alerts coming at you. Stuart, looking back, like what was the single biggest mistake you made during during those years at Slack? Hmm. You know, it's honestly, it's really hard for me to figure out to think of one. So it's not that I, that I don't think I made. Any How mistake. about your favorite mistake? <laughs> no, is there is there one that's uh, that that makes a makes a good story to tell after after hours? Well, I don't know if this is a good story, but remember Adam Bryant used to write this column for the New York Times called Corner Office? hmm And then he went to, I think it was Fortune, and, and did a video series instead. And our comms team said, hey, we got you onto his new show. They just released the first episode. It's Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn. And I used to work for Jeff at, at Yahoo. They're the ones who bought Flickr. Uh, it was his part of the company. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll listen to that and see what it's like. And I listened to it, and Adam asked Jeff, you know, what's the most important thing you learned? And he said it in a nicer way than this, but it was essentially, got to fire people faster. It's the biggest mistakes have always been um, keeping people in positions where they're not performing. And it doesn't mean people who are lazy or stupid or incompetent. We're really talking about people in executive or leadership positions at really fast-growing companies who when they first start, are doing an amazing job, and there's a team of 50 people, 
at 100 people, maybe things start to break down a little bit. At 200 people, it doesn't work quite as well. At 400 people or 500 people or 1,000 people, it can be pretty disastrous. And it, there's a lot of importance in those personal relationships you have with people. It can take a while to realize that things aren't working. So when I heard that, I was like, oh, Jeff, that's, that's so depressing. Like, you should have thought of something better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, I realized, like, it, it's, it's absolutely true. It is... Um, the biggest mistakes were always not moving fast enough to change the um, executive or leadership team and holding on to either people or structures that, that weren't working anymore. As someone who has led significant teams through multiple acquisitions at this point, like what advice would you have for an early stage founder who's thinking of an acquisition or who's heading into one in terms of just how to handle it, especially when it comes to like actually bringing a startup sort of team into a bigger, older company? Yeah, I think the the circumstances obviously matter. Like when we were acquired by Yahoo, Yahoo was 12,000 employees or something like that, and, and Flickr was nine people. Um, yeah. In contrast, Slack was somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 people at the time we announced the acquisition, and Salesforce was about 60,000 people. Now Slack's 3,500 people, and Salesforce is, including Slack, of about 80,000 so not like we were peers, but we were you know, much more important to Salesforce than Flickr was to, to Yahoo. No matter how much you talk about process and independence and culture, it's not enough. I think that's like the, the big lesson. Most acquisitions don't work. That's the result of some, some studies by people at business schools or finance schools or something like that. Um, so in other words, there's not um, a good return for the shareholders or the acquiring companies. That's what I mean when I say they, they don't work. Sure. They might work for all kinds of individuals inside those teams. Um, it might be a great outcome for the company that got acquired. There might be a bunch of like intangible benefits for the acquiring company in terms of technology or culture that are harder to, to quantify. But mostly they, they don't work. And I think one of the things that uh, was really interesting in the case of Slack is we had a really unique culture. And people wanted to come work at Slack because it was, you know, a hot company and it was growing really quickly. I think people in the technology world really wanted to come work at Slack because of the impact, because so many of their friends used it. But more than anything else, people wanted to come work at Slack because of the culture and because they either knew people who worked there or they'd heard about it. And so it's very different when suddenly there's a different culture. Trying to thread the needle between the having that independent identity um, and being part of something larger can be a real challenge. So, Stuart, part of the reason that you are here today uh, speaking with me is because there are big changes for you afoot. Um, you are planning to step away from Slack. You have made sort of this a big decision, another big decision, um, to pass the baton on. How do you come to that decision, um, and how difficult was that for you? It's pretty difficult, to be honest. It's... Um, uh, I still think it's good. There's lots of things that are that are, that are good that are difficult. Um, I don't want to suggest that this is old because I put this into a like an internal post and someone said, "Don't don't say that because it makes it sound like you think 50 years is old." I'm turning 50 in in two months, so I'll probably only live for another 170 years or something. <laughs> well, happy birthday, <laughs> you. young man. Yes, we're having a baby, uh, another baby in the next couple of weeks. I have a young child now. Um, and I guess I really not struggled with, but I, I spent a long time going, going back and forth between 
giving up on something that was so important to my identity and, you know, kind of probably will be the defining feature of, of my life when I look back. And then on the other hand, not feeling like I had to continue to do it forever, you know, like there's all kinds of things that I'm interested in creatively, academically. Being the CEO of any company is pretty demanding. I found Slack especially demanding. So it's not just that I'm tired, but it's kind of like either I do it forever or I can leave at any time. There wasn't something that was one year out or two years out or four years out that seemed like it made more sense. But I also just want to see what else I can do with my life. Stuart, when you look back at Slack and look to the future of Slack as well, like what are you most proud of having built? What do you think is the real impact of Slack that you mentioned will be part of your legacy? Well, we used to say um, really early on in the in the company's history that um, the thing that will have the biggest impact will be all the people who worked at Slack and the things that they go on to do in the rest of their careers. We really tried to um, obviously create an environment where we would want to work, but you know that was a, a good place to work. That was fair to people. Um, that was welcoming and inclusive, where um, people could really develop their careers. And the hope was that people would take those values, those lessons, that way of, of operating, and bring it into either new companies that they start or jobs that they, they take on, and it would have that kind of influence. Yeah. What do you think that the new wave of, uh, I don't know, let's call them the Slack mafia for lack of a better name, will will have? What what kind of qualities do those individuals have? Or what do you think their influence would be on their future startups and future workspaces, workplaces? Warmth, honesty, uh, transparency. You know, it's totally possible a lot of the stuff was easier for Slack because the business was, was so good. But it I think it was unusually supportive environment. In an all hands many years ago, I actually made everyone repeat after me in the long run. Then everyone's like, in the long run, um, <laughs> the measure of our success will be the amount of value we create for customers. So it sounds very kind of trite in some way, but the real goal was that we were much more interested in value creation than value extraction, like trying to get more money out of people or tie them to longer contracts. Because I think there is a real adversarial relation between companies and their customers, which can arise if you're not careful. And again, you know, easier said than done and much easier when the company is growing really quickly and, and economic conditions are good. But I think that mindset kind of combined with we should be focused on upside maximization rather than downside minimization. So like rather than kind of save our way to success or have a very risk-averse, protective culture, we should be worried more about how we can create bigger opportunities for ourselves and bigger opportunities for our customers. So I think that more personal side of inclusivity, honesty, supportive environment, and a business ethos that's much more customer-centric, those are the two that we have seen kind of promulgate out there. And, and I think my hope is that we'll see more and more of. What's a piece of advice you'd love to give to founders who are starting out these days that you've learned throughout your career? Um, don't read too many of those lists of like seven things that successful people do. <laughs> like, Yeah, and Inc., we never publish those, no. 
<laughs> what time people get up or what books they read or any of those things. The thing that really matters, one of the most important things that we did was give up on the game. And, you know, the poster of the kitten hanging from the tree that says hang in there and like perseverance and you got to keep going and determination. And like, there's a lot of messages to people that they should keep going no matter what. We stopped working on the game when we realized it just wasn't going to work and we had money left and we had the opportunity to do something else as opposed to just keeping going. So I think one thing for entrepreneurs who are just starting out to really pay attention to is the fine balance. And unfortunately, there's no like pat advice you can give, but the fine balance between sticking to something that you really believe in and being willing to admit you're wrong, cut your losses and um, and try something else. Yeah, it's like a, no one to call it, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you're first starting, I think there are like, there's a lot of um, mistakes that you'll make. And um, the easier it is for you to kind of acknowledge that something's a mistake, change course and iterate, the better off you are. But I just retweeted someone last night who I can't remember exactly how he said it, but the, the longer I've been making software, the more convinced I am that the right way to make good software is to make bad software faster. In other words, just do it. Like, <laughs> um, it's pretty, if ever I hear about a startup that's been in stealth for three years, it's pretty much guaranteed to fail because you just need kind of contact with reality in order to to come up with something good. And it, I think most of my skill as a product leader or product manager is understanding that I'm right maybe 53% of the time or something like that, and then just doing a lot of stuff rather than holding on to things and, and and trying to get to the point where they're perfection before trying anything. Because if you can you know, do 50 things in a row and have a 53% chance of success at any one of them, you're going to be in a much, much better place than doing three things and having you know an 80% chance of success because just, you can't iterate to the same point. I love how oddly specific that number is too, though. <laughs> Just a little more than half. So, Stuart, as you are stepping back from your position at Slack, are you are you going to really be able to detach yourself, or what's next? Do you have something else to focus on aside from your kids, or is it going to be all family and creativity in your future? Well, for the short term, yeah, family creativity. There's a lot of books that I haven't read. I want to go scuba diving, for example. You know, not, yeah, not that scuba diving is the most important thing, but. Um, just like you have a chance to, to try more things. I think there's a lot of business ideas that are interesting to me, but I, I'm going to try as hard as I can to not do anything for at least a year and focus on other stuff. That's fantastic. Well, again, congratulations to you and Jen, and thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great episode. Thank you, Christine. Stuart, a couple of things have stuck with me. First, as someone who uses Slack for work every single day, it was really interesting to hear about its slow evolution from nameless IRC-like colleague texting tool to pretty in-browser application. I love that Stuart compared how his team treated fixing it up to buying paper towels, something useful that you spend the minimum amount of time on. And then when it first got adopted by a company, it just broke. But then, upon its real launch in February 2014, it took only 72 hours to get to a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. 
Those are some of the cool exclusive details I hadn't heard before about Slack. But perhaps the more significant takeaway from Stuart is that he advises you should pursue the ideas you love, but not indefinitely. Don't listen to those posters with the hanging kitten that say, hang in there. He kind of challenges the idea of don't give up because sometimes there's a better opportunity out there. And if something isn't working, maybe it is just time to turn in a different direction. He says it's a fine balance and entrepreneurs should both possess the ability to stick to something they believe in and be willing to admit when they are wrong. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. And if you can spare a minute, please do leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping me a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Our producer, excuse me, our producer, our, I'm sorry, let me just turn that off. Our producer is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.